What should Christians think of the gender binary? What does the Bible have to say about transgender people? What is gender? And how does the way that we think about it affect us in our theology and in our world? We're going to be talking about all of that and more on today's episode of Theology on Air. Welcome back to Theology on Air. I am Sarah Stone. I'm the Outreach Director for Young Adults at MDPC, and I'm going to be hosting alongside Evan McClanahan today for today's show. So Evan McClanahan is the pastor of First Lutheran here in Houston, and we have two very special guests. I'm so excited about today's conversation. First, the Reverend Dr. Megan Rohr is the first openly transgender pastor ordained in the Lutheran Church and currently serves as the pastor of Grace Lutheran Church and the community chaplain coordinator for the San Francisco Police Department. Uh, Megan, some of you guys might recognize Megan from being featured on Queer Eye and Cosmo Magazine, uh, our own celebrity, pretty excited. And then of course, Dr. Robert Gagnon is a professor, excuse me, a professor of theology at Houston Baptist University. He has degrees from Dartmouth College, Harvard Divinity School, Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, he's the author of the widely acclaimed book, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics, as well as a bunch of other books and articles on sexual ethics. And he has been cited in the New York Times, NPR, CNN, and US News and World Report. So these guys are, uh, they're pros. And we're just so, so, so excited. For those of you that are kind of new to Theology on Air, uh, this is a live radio show and podcast that was born out of a ministry called Theology on Tap. Uh, Theology on Tap is a ministry to young adults in Houston where we talk about all kinds of um, cultural, theological, philosophical ideas and all over really delicious craft beer. And we have a really uh, large diversity of voices on our leadership panel, which means we get a large diversity of thought in our audience. And so I'm excited to have two very different voices today that will be sparring a little bit. We like to have some fun, but we also uh, love to be charitable and winsome in the way that we approach each other because we're all trying to figure out what the Bible means and how to follow Christ best. So, um, and of course, if you are listening online or you want to keep us going online, KPFT is listener-supported community radio. Um, if you want to give to keep this going so we don't have to have commercial breaks, if you ever listen to podcasts where they're like, and now I'd like to thank my friends at Cue the Product, we don't have to do that here. Um, so you can go to kpft.org to learn more about um, giving and, of course, give in the name of Theology on Air so we get a little shout out. All right, we've got all the boring stuff out of the way. We're going to get to our conversation. The way we're going to do this today is I'm going to ask Megan and Robert if they will both give, I don't know, seven or eight minutes of just what do you think the Bible has to say about the gender binary? What is it all about? Um, and of course, you'll have opposing thoughts. And so when you're done, we'll let you each react to the other one. And then there'll be a million questions, I'm sure. But and of course, we want to hear a little bit of your own stories as well. So Megan, how do you feel about going first? Sure, I would love to. All right, take us away. All right. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, I, I actually think it might be surprising today. Dr. Gagnon and I are actually going to agree on most of our theology. We just might agree on what it means that we agree. Um, <laughs> and we both love God, right? So that's the most important agreement that we have. We both believe traditional interpretations of scripture define this conversation. And surprisingly, we both believe that the sacred worth of trans people is centered in Genesis 1 and 2. Mm. 
Dr. Gagnon argues that trans people are so far outside of God's love and creative imagination that we disrespect God. Because he believes Genesis 1 through 2 is a metaphor about the body being a temple, I believe it should be read literally. God takes a non-gendered human, puts them to sleep, divides them into bits that are female from bits that are male. Read literally, this original creation sounds a lot like God was the first gender confirmation surgeon. Each time Dr. Gagnon tries to change the subject to gay men, I will recenter the conversation to the normalcy of bodily transfiguration, the sacredness of name changes in the Bible. And I'll show that even if I'm wrong, Jesus will still save me. Mm. Yes. As it is written in Psalm 30, verse 5, God's anger is but a moment, but God's love lasts forever. When the great day comes that I stand before God, I feel confident that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection will save me so completely that I am powerless to undo it. Hmm. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, it shall save a wretch like me. Also, I feel confident that God will be okay with the fact that I spend as little time as possible imagining the shape and the functions of private parts of others. <laughs> Instead, I spend my time and energy loving the Lord my God with all my heart, with hmm. all my soul, and with all my mind, and doing the best I can to love my neighbor as myself. What this means is that I look to rabbinical tradition about the readings of the book of Genesis. And I recall that the text says, male and female, God created them. Literal readings should remember the word and exists in that passage. Changing it to male or female, God created them, is a choice. I prefer the literal reading. In the Hebrew, biblical pronouns fluctuate more than is ever captured in the English translation. Those who are interested in this, you can read more from Rabbi Mark Samoth who wrote the name, the dual gendered names for God. Adam is referred to as them in the Bible. During the flood, Noah repairs her tent. Rebecca is referred to as a young man. And Mordecai is called Esther's nursing father. You might think this is crazy leftist Bible translation, but how many of you in Bible school when you were little kids sang this? Rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham, rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham. The theology about Abraham was that he could nurse you the way a female would, that spiritual love and sharing of education is something where you can be both masculine and feminine in the same body and God adores it. The big question then is, can human beings do other modifications to their body after the creation? Would God be okay with it? Or would God not be okay with surgical modifications after creation? Rock of my soul in the bosom of Abraham. Abraham is told by God, change your private parts. Circumcision is a surgical altering of private parts. Abraham is not only supposed to do this to his own body, but to more people than there are stars. Hmm. All the followers are to change their private parts. It even goes as far in Genesis to say, if you don't modify your private parts, 
God will cast you aside. We know this to be true because think of how much Paul writes about circumcision, trying to let people know, don't worry. If you choose not to modify your private parts, God can still love you. If we, if we stayed centered literally in the Bible, it would be the burden of proof on people who choose not to have surgical changes done to their private parts to show that God loves them. But I know a lot of the arguments that are going to come from Paul or come from readings of Paul, pay attention when you hear that, because it's going to come from the first through four chapters of the books of Paul. The beginning of Paul's books always start with a list of people that it's easy for groups of people to be against. But every one of Paul's letter ends the same way. Nothing, neither death nor life, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come can ever separate you from the love of God. Paul says you can choose the law or you can choose the freedom of the cross, but you can't have both. When given a choice, I choose the cross, I choose to follow Jesus, and I choose to be centered in this idea that transfigurations happen. What does it mean that Jesus goes on top of a mountain and Jesus's body changes? What does it mean that how important it is that Jesus's body is caught, scarred and cut, not surprisingly in the same place Adam was? What does it mean that after he comes back from the grave, and is resurrected, no one recognizes the physical body of Jesus. Bodily changes are sacred. Name changes are sacred. When you have an important encounter with God, your name changes. All of these things that trans people might experience in their life are a part of a sacred journey. In fact, I wrote a book as well. It was actually featured in Wittenberg, Germany for the 500th anniversary of, of the Reformation. And in the back, it has 247 different words used around the world to name trans people as sacred simply because they were trans. It includes also a prayer calendar that has at least 17 saints from the ancient Christian church of people who were trans and considered saints just because they were trans. Loving God is possible if you have a mind and a body and a heart that is centered on Christ. Mm -hmm. Conversations about private parts never were on Jesus's list. And if it's good enough for Jesus that we are to love our neighbor and that we are to love God, then I too believe we can center ourselves in that. So that's where I, I hold my theology. Wow, that's so fascinating. By the way, I will say this for the people watching on Facebook. We have a lot of thoughts coming in, but so far only a couple questions. So I am going to ask if you're watching on Facebook and you want to ask a question, maybe just put a cue in front of it because I'm trying to listen and watch the comments. So if it's just like, I agree or I disagree, that's fine. But uh, anyway, I'll just ask that, that small thing. But all right, Dr. Gagnon, I'm sure you have lots of thoughts of your own and then we'll respond to each other. But, but take us away with your own thoughts on this. Well... <clears throat> We can all clean ourselves up on the outside, but on the inside things that God doesn't want us to do. It's why God is in the business of holistic transformation of, of our lives, a complete total home makeover where we want 
to do things as we want to do, when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it with. Jesus instead gives us a message of discipleship to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, to lose our lives, and to come follow him. And where do we receive our help from this? We receive our help from the love and power of God. How do we know the path or the way to life that God gives us? God gives us that in a clear and consistent witness in his revealed word. Through Jesus, through his use of the scriptures that were authoritative for him in the Old Testament. Through the apostolic witness to Christ. And there is a clear and consistent witness of Jesus on human sexuality. Scripture has to be our priority in terms of deciding what the truth is. Yes, there are arguments from reason, both philosophical and scientific. And experience has some role to play. But no experience is self-interpreting. The historic understanding of the church is at the top is scripture, the direct revelation of God that is given. Experience would be last because experience isn't self-interpreting. You find the um, lens through which to interpret experience in the direct revelation of God in scripture. And there is indeed a consistent witness on human sexual ethics in scripture. The sexual binary is sacred to God in scripture. Um, Megan started by talking about my view of Genesis. Let me clarify a little bit. Uh, Genesis describes the creation of woman by using a Hebrew word, selah, which is frequently translated rib, out of which he forms a woman. And extraction is made from the man, creating a missing element in the man, uh, thus creating him as a gender-specific man. Previously to this point, he's just called a human. And Adam is the Hebrew term, not being used as a proper name. And then once this woman is created from this Selah, which I think is better interpreted side, uh, then the gender-specific terms of Ish, man, and Ishar, woman, are then used retroactively. I say side because this Hebrew word Selah, everywhere else, one exception, used for the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the, or the Solomonic Temple, or the eschatological temple in Ezekiel. Hmm. Um, and one of, only once is it used for the side of a hill. Everywhere else it's used for a side of a piece of sacral architecture. And it's a way of saying that God's creation of man and woman is sacral architecture to God. It's something holy to God. We see Jesus making an appeal to this in Mark 10, parallel in Matthew 19. Jesus is dealing with the question of the number of allowable partners in a sexual union, whether serially in divorce and remarriage for any cause, or implicitly concurrently in a polyamorous union, or in those days, a polygamous union. Because there was never polyandry, there never existed the opportunity for multiple husbands by wives. Uh, The exception was only given to men. Uh, Women operated under a monogamy principle. Men did not. Jesus revoked that license that's given to men. And Hmm. why? how did he revoke it? He revoked it by an appeal to the two key creation texts in Genesis 1 and 2. Male and female, he created them, citing only one-third of Genesis 1 
11:27 and therefore and and next to it Genesis 2:24 which begins with a therefore which is a way of saying that the therefore is found in Genesis 1:27 because God created us as male and female as a complementary sexual pair designed for sexual union therefore a man may become joined to a woman and the two and only the two become one flesh now it's interesting that he says the two because the two is not actually in the hebrew text of genesis 224 it's in all the versional evidence it's in uh the greek translation it's in the uh samaritan uh pentateuch it's in the aramaic targums it's in the vulgate but it's not in the hebrew text this of the sexual binary sexual creation designed by god and he's cuz god intentionally created humans as a complementary sexual pair male and female such that the two halves of the sexual spectrum unite to form a single sexual whole a third party or more is neither necessary nor desirable because once you join together a male and a female a man and a woman the two halves of the sexual spectrum are already united an integrated sexual whole is already created so what jesus is saying ishan of sexual ethics is god's intentional creation of a male and a female for sexual pairing and it's the binary character of human sexuality that for jesus is the foundation for limiting the number of partners in a sexual union to two whether at any one time or serially now that means that polyamory as bad as that may be is not as bad as the rejection of the foundation upon which a monogamy principle is predicated so the the binary element of human sexuality male and female is critical for jesus absolutely critical in addition to that we can also see a correlation with the question of adult consensual incest as another parallel why not allowly if they allow uh birth birth control is used in the process because there's too much identity on the part of the participants too much formal identity in terms of kinship not enough kinship otherness there's even more identity felt in a same sex union same sex unions are essentially a rejection a partial rejection of an individual's biological sexual identity regarding somebody of the same sex not somebody of the other sex to be one's complementary half if the logic of a heterosexual union is two halves of the sexual spectrum unite to form a single sexual whole the logic of a homosexual union is that two half males become a whole male two half females become a whole female it's a misunderstanding about one's sexual identity that one is not whole in one's maleness or in one's femaleness needing to be supplemented by a person of the same sex 
as if their own sexual identity was incomplete. Transgenderism is even more radical. Transgenderism is a complete rejection of one's birth sex. Not a statement that I'm only half my own sex, but a statement that I'm not even my own birth sex. And from the standpoint of scripture, that's a denial of God's work as creator. And it is regarded as nothing less than blasphemous. That's why in Deuteronomy 22.5, it's very clear that cross-dressing is abhorrent to God because cross-dressing illustrates a view of one's gender identity that is at odds with one's biological reality. The word used there is tovah. It's an abomination. It's something revolting to God. Mm. Now, they knew in the ancient world about persons who did identify, if you will, as transgender in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman Mediterranean basin. Mm. Ancient Israelites, early Jews, and early Christians were not unaware of this phenomenon. They were quite aware of it. They're designated by different uh, terms in the ancient Near East, Kugaru, Alulu, etc. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, they're called the Kadashim, which refers to men who believe that they're consecrated to an androgynous deity and thereby emasculate themselves, remove their marks of masculinity, and have sex with other men as females. Paul uses a similar term, and by the way, that those figmistic historian is also committing an abomination. The same term, something revolting or abhorrent to God. The same term that's used with respect to homosexual practice in Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. And when Paul discusses in his vice or offender list in 1 Corinthians 6.9, of a group, groups of persons who by virtue of their self-affirming sinful behavior are going to be excluded from God's kingdom. He includes not only men who lie with a male, which is actually a quotation, a virtual quotation from Leviticus 18, 22 and 2013. It's the term that does not appear in the Greco-Roman milieu. It appears only in early Judeans. And in, in addition to that term, arsenal koitai, is the term malakoi. Soft men, Latin would be mollusk, same term, same meaning. And it applies to men who actively feminize themselves, removing the marks of masculinity to, again, attract male sex partners. They too Dr. are Gagnon, as being excluded from God's kingdom. Dr. Gagnon, I hate to jump in, but we do want to try to have equal time. And I'm, I'm keeping general time for the sake of the podcast, but I wasn't timing each of you. But um, I wanted to keep those opening remarks somewhat the same. So, um, sure. so I, pro- I, I apologize for jumping in, but I want to make sure Megan has equal time. So, Megan, maybe take a few minutes to, to come back. And I might say as well, Dr. Gagnon, that you might, because you're still kind of coming in and out a little bit. So, you, what you might do is stop the video. It'd keep you on the call, but you you're, wouldn't use bandwidth for the video. So that's a suggestion. Oh, However, okay. that would mean that we can't see you, but you can see us. And uh, I would be comfortable with that, but I'd, I don't know if everyone else would be. But just a suggestion. A, for, guy. a lot of people on Facebook are not very happy with him freezing up. They're like, come on, he's our guy. Like, let's hear it. <laughs> so, 
So in the bottom left, uh, Dr. Gagnon, it just says stop video. And if you just click on that, it'll just, it'll, your, your, your name or, or whatever will pop up. And then, but you should be able to see us and still interact. So Megan, maybe a few minutes coming back on some of the things he said in particular, I think, you know, he did talk about uh, Tel Aviv, uh, you know, the abomination that God understands the, the, some of these things. And he did use the word blasphemy. So maybe coming back on that. Uh, well, I, I guess the way that I would say it is that I just want to remind people the majority of what he just spoke about is about sexuality, which is a different topic. Um, and, and so what I want to focus us on is, is transgender issues. And, and I know that, that the, the belief that transness is more extreme or, or as the way I would say it colloquially, like it's more you gross than other stuff that we could imagine that people could do with their bodies. Um, it's didn't really talk about any of the stuff like rock of my soul at the bosom of Abraham. Like it's, that's still a part of our theological pattern as well. You can, you can have Greek words like Malakoi and bring them up. Uh, what, what Dr. Gagnon knows is that it's only used four times in Paul's writings. Every other time it's used to describe fabric as soft. So presuming it's about a whole group of people and means a specific thing. I could as easily argue that a soft man is someone who's overweight right? Because there's no other cross-references for it. And I'm sure Dr. Gagnon will, could cite a million things about it, but again, it's about sexuality. It's not about the issue at hand, which is transgender issues. Hmm. And it also leaves out the fact that many things that Jesus changes on, right? He, said, he talks about how Jesus comes to a more strict idea of sexuality, I, I couldn't tell you exactly what Jesus's sexual ethic is because my experience is that Jesus asks a lot of questions to make us wonder, hmm. to make us less judgy of our neighbor. Uh, Matthew, Matthew says, the measurement we use on other people is the measurement God will use on us in judgment. So if people want to have a very specific way they judge other people, that's cool. But I'm going to be allowing God to do those kinds of judgments. I don't know what it means when Jesus poses this question to people who uphold the law above um, the freedom of Christ. When Jesus says, the sex workers will go ahead of you in heaven. I don't know what that means for Jesus's sex ethic, but it would be a question I would pose back. Not, not because I have a stance on sexuality, again, not the topic, but because sometimes Jesus asks questions in hopes that we'll love more people love the Gentiles, even though they weren't a part of the promise in Deuteronomy. I think look to the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch known to be a trans person during that time period. Traditionally through the, the way that Deuteronomy was read, eunuchs were not allowed to go in the holiest places in the temple, but he encounters a disciple of God and he says another question meant to evoke, what is to prevent me from being baptized? Mm -hmm. And they stop and he gets baptized, right? And so know that sometimes God's saving actions happen regardless of whether or not we understand them. Jesus says there are more people who are a part of my flock than are in this household. And so I believe that if God says people are saved, that God has the ability to do that. And I'm not willing to call God a liar. And so if, if Jesus says, eat, these, eat this bread, drink this cup, uh, there's only one baptism for the forgiveness of all of my sins. If Paul says these divisions don't matter anymore, no more Jew nor Greek, no more 
no more um, Gentile, nor Jew, nor slave, nor free, male and female, right? Again, Paul gets it. If these divisions are erased by Christ dying on the cross, I'm not certain why they're as important as they are to Dr. Gagnon. And that would be the question I would pose back. Why has being against a group of people been worth 20 years of study in your life? Mm. What is it that is what brings your passion to this subject? And so that would be the question I offer back. Dr. Gagnon, are you still with us? Can you hear us? I am. There's a, a lot that I would like to respond to because there's a lot that's been said here. Uh, and wait, before you go, Dr. Gagna, I want to just put out there, various people are wondering if you will react, maybe you're already planning on this, but to Megan's assertion about uh, like circumcision and the transfiguration piece. So I want to put that on your radar to react to that if you didn't already plan to. Yes, at the beginning, a number of things here to address quickly. Yeah. Megan said that I said that transgender people are people outside of God's love. That's absolutely false. Hmm. God's love is designed to reclaim us for his kingdom. Not for ourselves to continue to live by our own internal desires about what we think is right, but rather to conform our lives in a cruciform, cross-centered existence to what God's will is for our life not our wills for ourselves. I don't get that pass. She doesn't get that pass. Nobody gets that pass. That's why Jesus defines discipleship, again, as losing your life, taking up your cross, denying yourself, not getting what you want, but denying yourself. We're all under that stricture, not just her, but all of us are under that. She argued that there is certain pronouns, uh, like female pronouns applied to men or male pronouns applied to females in the Hebrew Bible, citing this Rabbi Summit, I actually have an article on that, um, on this article in the New York Times, rebutting that. Summit doesn't seem to understand, and it would be, his conclusions would be rejected by all biblical scholars, that there are what we call orthographic variants in the Hebrew Bible. That is spelling deviations in earlier and later periods of the Hebrew text. And the difference between a Hebrew pronoun who and a Hebrew pronoun he, the former being, uh, who being he and he, ironically, being she, is the use of a vowel uh, sign, which at the earliest stages is more limited and uses much more generic who, which means not just he, but any individual, whether he or she. Only at later stages did that vowel sign get specifically pointed as female. So what Samit attributes to an approval of transgenderism is nothing but orthographic variations in the biblical manuscript at earlier stages. All biblical Hebrew scholars know that. No exceptions anywhere among an actual professor of Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. There's no dissenting point of view on that issue. Um, Circumcision is doing something, yes, to the male member, but it's not changing the male member. It's not changing the man into a woman. It's merely being used as a sign of putting off fleshly desires to seek the will of God in our life so that even our sexual desires are subjugated to the will of God. It actually indicates the exact opposite of what Megan is saying, not a license to do what you want consistent with whatever your innate urges are, 
but the exact opposite, that your will, including your will about your sexual life, will be subordinated to God's demands, quite unlike what we have going on in the ancient Near East generally. And that's why the understanding of sexual purity in the Hebrew Bible is much more carefully circumscribed than any else, anywhere else that we find in the ancient Near East or in the Greco-Roman milieu at a later time. So she's reading it exactly opposite from the way the text reads it. Let's look at eunuchs. She talked about eunuchs as being a, a preliminary to accepting transgenderism. Quite the contrary. Eunuchs that are discussed in the Isaiah text that she referred to, or the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, these are persons that are made eunuchs. They are not persons who are seeking to erase the marks of their masculinity. They rather had it done to them. In fact, in Isaiah 39, it makes that very point that they are not at fault precisely because it was done to them rather than they doing it to themselves. So all that Isaiah is saying is, why should they be penalized if, it's something, if it was something that was forced on them rather than undertaken by their own initiative? When Jesus talks about eunuchs in his statement in Matthew 19, which is right after his statement insisting, by the way, she talked about, Megan talked about me only talking about sexuality and not transgenderism. She's missing the whole point. Jesus' demarcation of a male-female requirement for sexual ethics based on biology is absolutely foundational to his entire understanding of human sexual ethics. That's what both homosexuality and transgenderism attack at its root, that that should not be the foundation of sexual ethics. But Jesus actually premised all other sexual ethics standards on that foundation. For him, that indicates that's absolutely critical for him in terms of defining human sexual ethics. It is the underpinning to all sexual ethics, not just transgenderism, not just homosexuality, but also polyamory, also incest, and all other pro and adultery and all other prohibitions of sexual immorality. So she's trying to say it's too general, doesn't apply here. What I'm saying is it's general because it applies to all sexual ethics especially this because it's homosexual practice and transgenderism alone that attack the root, the very foundation of what Jesus says is central to all sexual ethics. Okay, let's, let's, let's let Megan come back. I mean, a, a couple of thoughts, Megan. I mean, one is kind of maybe bigger, bigger picture and one is, is more um, specific. The, the unit question is one that, that comes up a lot in all of these conversations. It's especially in the New Testament, it strikes, it comes up again and again, it's kind of the best evidence for, for there not being a gender binary or, or what have you. And part of what Dr. Gagnon was saying was that that was something sort of forced upon him. I'd, I'd be curious to a response for that. That's the smaller question. I think the bigger question though is frequently in these conversations, you do hear Galatians 3, 28 cited, you know, neither male, male nor female. So, and, and so there, in that context, it's really about say justification. It's about you know, how are we, we are seen in God's eyes. Do you think it's fair to extrapolate the fact that God's justification is, you know, for all people to then equate an equality of something like gender? Or is that, I mean, is that, I mean, I, I guess you do think that's a fair way of understanding the scripture. I mean, I, I guess I think maybe the difficulty that is between our two positions is that 
we disagree on what's interpretation, what's a theological reading of the scripture and what's there, right? And so um, if you already believe Jesus believes this thing, you see it there in that text, isn't it obvious that it's there? And both, both of us have that inclination. It's, a, it's just part of our lens of how we see the world. Um, when, it, when it comes to experience, as a parent, I, I try to just take parenting advice from other parents, right? And when it comes to sexuality, um, if your number one advice on how to be a sexually ethical person is from someone based in celibacy, it's hard to know how to take that. You take marriage advice from someone who's married, right? And so um, not knowing Dr. Gagnon's place in the world, it's hard to know where the expertise is coming from or this advice is coming from. Um, in, in conversations about eunuchs, there was a wide diversity of, of ways and reasons that people became eunuchs, some by choice, um, some on purpose, um, some through parental choices. It's, it's really diverse. There's no description in Acts about why the Ethiopian eunuch became a eunuch, only that they were one and that they're sacred now through baptism. And so, you know, you can take that for what it is. I think there are a number of places where um, discipleship is called for that we do hard things. And, and this is not me. If there's one thing that comes from this, it should be saying that I too believe that there are things that we do because we follow and love God, right? Mm -hmm. I'm married to one person. I have two children, right? I, I make personal decisions about my private parts that I would not encourage other people to make about their private parts, right? Our bodies are something that are sacred. We were each knit together individually in our wombs, God says, right? And, and Paul says something that I think is very helpful for this conversation. Paul says, nothing is unnatural in, in, in and of itself. It is only made unnatural by those who think it is unnatural. Paul believes that some people can choose not to eat meat. Paul believes some people can choose circumcision. Other people can choose not to have circumcision. This is not a conversation of me saying Dr. Gagnon should do something that is not natural for him. Um, but it is a conversation wondering why Dr. Gagnon thinks that his interpretation can tell other people what is natural for them. And so I err on the side of, of Jesus's metaphor, let the weeds and the wheat lie together right? Let God be the one who figures out who is doing the right, just thing. Does that mean that I don't live my personal ethic? Does that mean if God is calling me to do something, I do something else, and instead I go, right, take on every bodily craving that I have? No. I, I think more like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is that each of us is individually to discern what God is calling us to do. Not everybody was called to be swallowed by a whale. Jonah was. And by the way, that fish starts off male and becomes female. What? Later in the book. That's right. And, and I would like to err on the side of assuming that the Bible, the way that it's written, is sacred. Dr. Gagnon can say that there's spelling errors in it. Perhaps. But... Um, I believe that the scripture is sacred, if only proven by the fact that Dr. Gagnon and I have the same book that names us and claims us. The same book nurtures our faith. The same book shows us that God is our God. 
And that's a beautiful thing that, that I will celebrate. Dr. Gadnon, can I go back to a very foundational text? And because well, I think before that... Before you do that, may yeah. I actually respond to some of the things that were mm -hmm. said here? Uh, as you mentioned, the Galatians 3.28 text, neither male and female. Even William Loder, a New Testament scholar who's written more books on sexual ethics in early Judaism and early Christianity than anybody else, about eight or nine of them, who's thoroughly affirming of gay marriage and transgenderism, even he acknowledges that Galatians 3.28 is not a window for affirmation of these behaviors for Paul. That all Paul is saying by neither male and female is that men and women have equal worth before God. That's it. We actually know that there were heretics in Paul's day, including at Corinth, and Gnostics later, who actually interpreted that with regard to sexual behavior. And even they understood that if it was applied to sexual behavior, it would mean no sex, asceticism. And the church fathers who responded to them, even though they disagreed with their application, said that's right, in the kingdom of God, when this does apply fully to sexual behaviors as well, then it means no sexual behavior at all. So if that's how you want to apply it, then it would mean complete asceticism from any sexual behavior, because Jesus's view is, so long as we have these biological bodies in this realm, there is legitimate distinction between male and female that must be upheld, because men are not women, women are not men, and when you put men and women together, the extremes of each sex are moderated, and the gaps in the sexual self are filled. When you put two women together or two men together, or if it ends up that way with a woman who identifies as a man and is having relations with a woman, but it's really a woman, still basically a lesbian relationship, the extremes are not moderated and the gaps are not filled. Men and women are not interchangeable. I'm sorry if I shocked anyone by that statement. That is a radical statement. Men and women are different. And they're different in ways that complement each other so that the extremes can be moderated and the gaps can be filled. We do know that the eunuch uh, from Ethiopia was castrated. That's what happens. That's the, that's the overwhelming situation that takes place in Ethiopia for those who work for the queen is they are castrated. We also know, have various Jewish texts from early Judaism saying that eunuchs, if they're to be part of God's kingdom, are not to engage in sex, sexual behavior, and are to maintain God's commandments by not cross-dressing. That's the, that's the overwhelming view in early Judaism. So there's no, there's no question of taking the eunuch text as affirmation of transgenderism. There is no biblical text that supports transgenderism. Not only is there no biblical text, but it's regarded as extreme sacrilege, abhorrent to God to do it. That's a clear and consistent witness throughout the canon of Scripture. There is no alternative voice to that. So when Megan talks about, well, we just have different ways of interpreting the text, of course we all have different ways of interpreting the text. That's why I wrote a 500-page book to deal with the counter-arguments having to do with it, right? Anyone can make any argument they want, they want to make, but the question is, can you adequately defend it in light of the evidence? She talked about judgment. Gee, this is not about judgment. And she cited a text from Matthew 7 about not judging. Guess what? In Matthew's gospel, there are more judgment words from Jesus than in any other gospel by far. 
So obviously that's not how Matthew interprets the don't judge text. What Matthew understands Jesus to be saying by don't judge is don't judge hypocritically and don't major in minors. Be aware that you too are a sinner and in need of repentance. But if you want to love somebody, and this, this is a text from the Old Testament that Jesus appeals to, Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What is the context for that? If you if you shall not hate your neighbor, you shall not hold a grudge against your neighbor. And if your neighbor does wrong, you shall reprove your neighbor, lest you incur guilt for failing to warn them. And you will love your neighbor as yourself. That's why when Jesus talks about sin of your neighbor in Leviticus 17, he says, if your neighbor is sinning, rebuke him so that he can be reclaimed for the kingdom of God. It's the whole reason why the summary of Jesus' message about the coming kingdom, according to the Gospel of Mark, is first repent, turn from your sin to follow God's path as revealed in Scripture. Uh, I'm going to stop you there for a second. I, um, partly because time is of the essence, partly because I've seen Megan's face squinch so many times. I definitely want to make sure we, we kind of circle back and give you guys each a chance to respond to each other. But I also really want to get to some of the questions from people on Facebook. One of the questions that came up, we talked a little bit about when you were having technical difficulties. So I wanted to make sure we kind of came back to it. The question is about how many genders are there? The idea of this whole podcast is, is the gender binary? Are there just two, right? And I know there are people even in the trans world that would say, yes, there are just two. That's why I chose to go from one to the other, right? Like, and then there's some people that say there's over 60. Um, so Dr. Gang and I assume that you think that there are two genders and that's biblical, correct? Yeah, there are two genders, two sexes intentionally designed by God. And you would use those terms uh, interchangeably, sex and gender. Uh, I understand that people make the distinction between sex as your biological reality and gender as the way that you self-present. But the view that scripture would have on it is that your self-presentation should be consistent with your biology. And okay. not to do that is to commit sacrilege. But yes, there are, you know, people talk about other categories like the intersex. Yeah, well, but the intersex are not a third sex. I want to hold off on intersex just for a minute. That's a slightly different conversation. Mm -hmm. um, well, not slightly. It's a, it's a much different conversation. Mm -hmm. But why don't you finish that thought out that we got paused on earlier about genders and how many are there? Is there some, I mean, there's like the graphic you, when you go on Google and you put in, you know, gender binary, you see like the sort of typically man and typically female and then all the in-betweens. Well, part, the reason why I mentioned the intersex is because that's part of the in-betweens. And okay. what it's essential to establish here is that the intersex do not create a new sex. They are oh. understood to be a disorder of sexual development. Okay. They don't create a new way to reproduce. Um, they don't create a new chromosome. They don't create a new sex hormone. They don't create new types of genitalia. They're rather widely regarded in the medical profession as disorders of sexual development. And okay, let me, what let me, we may have going on with people who identify as transgender is a disorder of sexual development. Not. I, I, I have to jump in here because if we don't kind of steer this ship, we're, we're gonna be here all day. Just for those listening that maybe don't know what intersex is, would it be fair to say that intersex people are born with often both male and female genitalia in some capacity? It's what we used to call hermaphroditic, That's and we've right. called it lots of different things. But well, they may have two X chromosomes with a Y chromosome instead of just an XY, things like that. 
Right. So um, natural natural variations that occur right. but a y chromosome through the way people are born. But a y chromosomes essentially by doctors they understand that essentially determines a male. Sure. Um, and XX determines a female. Even if it's a double X and a Y, they still essentially understand the individual as male. These are very statistically small uh, yeah. elements of the total population. It would be like taking conjoined twins and arguing that therefore we should implode monogamy because you can't bring your other twin outside the room when you're having sex. I okay, mean, I don't want to spend too much time on intersex because you're right, it is a very small portion of the, of the world. But Megan, what were you going to say about genders? How many are there? Maybe you don't have a number. Maybe you want to move on and that's fine. We can take another question. No, I think what would be good to say is that there was a lot of rabbinical writings in the oral Torah about Genesis 1 and 2 and about different ways that as God takes this perfect whole and slices it, that the slice isn't the same every time. In the same way that I don't have the same DNA as any of you, um, when God took this perfect whole and sliced it, that sometimes the slice happened differently. And so the early rabbis were talking about people coming back together in holes in ways that didn't always look exactly like Adam and Eve's story. Um, so there is a long-term kind of way of thinking about gender being a multiplied way of describing it. I think what I would do is just, I would say, in the same way that every Christian is going to have a different testimony, every trans person has a different way of describing their body and based on where they live in different parts of the world might use different terms and language for it. My sense is that trans choices are a lot more complicated maybe than most people imagine. Because for the one part, you might have this way you would love your body to look, right? Uh, and it, might yeah. look like, it might look like Barbie, it might look like Ken, right? But in the real world, if you're having a trans experience, you might honor your fertility for a certain period of your life and withhold when you want to look more like that body of your choice. You might um, have want to get married and have a sacred relationship in all the ways that Dr. Gagnon is talking about and just make different choices about your gender journey at different parts of your time span. And I think some people think that you identify as trans and then you do these things and you get it done and they don't always remember that you know, you're, if you're, you're taking your fertility choices very seriously, you're having one set of thoughts about it. If you're taking your, your romantic partner's thoughts about your body seriously, you might have another conversation about it. And so it's a very complex way of being embodied. And that's why I kind of, I push back from the, it's like this experience and then like this, because it's so complicated, right? For some people, they don't see procreation as their future. And so they make different choices. And so, um, and if we all live long enough, our body sags and folds and changes in ways that we might or might not be into. But, well, let's, but, let's, but change is constant is what I would say about our cosmetic, This This is, first of all, this is mutilation of the body oftentimes leading to, and when it's taken full sexual reassignment surgery, so-called, leads to actual uh, elimination of reproductive capacity. I mean, you really have to go a long way to eliminate the existence of the gendered body that you're born with. And, and you never, it's only at best cosmetic surgery. They can't restore functioning sex organs 
hormones can't be of the other sex cannot be naturally produced. It's a lifelong taking of pills or injections in order to do that. And that's because the body, it resists this kind of fundamental transformation of it to make it what it is not. The whole skeletal design of the body. And in the end, you're not changing the DNA by one iota. You're not changing an XY to an XX or an XX to an XY. None of that's happened. It's purely cosmetic surface change, but it's a radical reevaluation of the body. You know, it's interesting. And it's all based on a subjective interpretation because I feel this way, therefore I am this. And not only I am this, but you must say that I am this. I mean, earlier she talked about the fact that, uh, you know, we have to let everybody live their own lives. That's not the way the LGBTQ movement works. And every one of us knows that. I've been a victim of the cancel culture of the LGBTQ. I face professional cause for it. I get, I get uh, slandered right and left, including by Megan before we even got on, who called me a biblical scholar where she put scholar in quotation marks, even though my degrees are from Dartmouth, Harvard, and Princeton. And even though my work has been widely acclaimed, even by scholars on the other side, at Oxford and Vanderbilt and other, other places as legitimate work. And she compared, she said she would be civil to me in the same way that she had been civil in a conversation with a white supremacist. Now, I didn't find that to be flattering. I'm, I'm in an interracial marriage with interracial children. And to declare that I am on an analogy with the white supremacists, and then present herself here as being, well, everybody needs to live their own lives and make their own decision. That's not the way it happens. And what I think we need to devote here is some time to discuss what is the ecclesiastical and political cost to bending the knee to the LGBTQ God, because there is a huge cost to pay. It isn't live and let live. It's never been live and let live by them. I've been in a mainline denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA. For many years, I debated in the ELCA. By the way, they don't hear all the voices now. The side that I represent, the historic Christian position, you don't hear those voices in debate in an ELCA venue any longer. It's a one-sided presentation. I've given presentations in the Episcopal Church, in the Methodist Church, all across the main denominational lines, and they all have the same argument on the left, on the LGBTQ agenda. doesn't change no matter what denomination I've been to. Why? Because Robert, it's all opposed to biblical text in its context. Dr. Gagnon, I hate to interrupt again, but we do have to, we're, we're going to bring the, the podcast portion of the show to an end. Uh, we, we have to do that. We have to bring it to an end at, at, at exactly 58 minutes or so for the podcast radio show purposes. You've been, if you've been listening on the digital uh, output of this uh, through the HD2 channel at KPFT, we want to thank you for listening. Go to kpft.org to learn more about how you can support radio like this. Uh, and if you're listening on the podcast or Facebook Live, what we're going to do, uh, we're going to keep going on Facebook Live. We have a lot to talk about still, a lot of questions unanswered. We can go as long as you guys want. Uh, this will be on YouTube as well in the not-so-distant future. Uh, but So we want to keep going, but for our radio listeners and podcast listeners, uh, we want to encourage you to question freely, think deeply, and disagree as needed. Mm-hmm.